Welcome to the Gamers Inn. Come on in, pull up a chair next to the fire. It looks like you've had a long journey. I'm your host, Ryan, and joining me this week is my co-host, Jim. How's it going, Jim? Hey, Ryan. It's going well. How about you? Good. Thank you for guesting on the show. Uh, if you follow Jocelyn on Twitter, uh, you probably saw the tweet that she, uh, her, her dog, Lex, passed away unexpectedly uh, on Sunday. So she is taking the week off. If you can send her, uh, you know, well wishes on Twitter and just good vibes, that would be super appreciated. So, but uh, she'll be back next week. Um, but uh, both Jocelyn and I are excited to bring Jim on as a repeat guest, but also as our new game club manager, which we're going to talk about <laughs> later on in the show, because Jim's been taking over the Discord uh, lately with a new game called Other Side, which I'm excited to hear about. So, Jim, what's up with Other Side? Well, the first and most important thing for anyone that's familiar with me and my previous appearance on the show is that, shockingly, this is not anime, not even Whoa. Japanese at all. So, completely different than I believe the last three times I've been on with you. That's true. But, you, well, I mean, we'll get to the anime later. I mean, let's not bury the lead here. There's there's still anime oh, to come. Uh, that is true, but not the game that I'm talking about actively playing. Yes. Yeah. The other side is a, a grid-based tactics game, somewhat in the vein of something like Fire Emblem or, I guess, XCOM, which I'm less familiar with. But it's very, very unique in quite a few ways. What actually got my attention with it is... Last week, there was an article from IGN talking about the like, the 10 best tactics games of all time. And when I read the list, uh, that was number 10 on it. And I'd never heard of the game, but what caught my eye was this really unique and stunning visual style. It's not... Um, well, are you familiar with the movie Sin City? Yes. Yeah, Sin okay. City um, is the black and white with the accent color... Uh, red, yellow, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I actually was thinking about it today and realized that that's what the game really reminds me of. It's this very, not monochromatic, but almost monochromatic look of black and white and gray. Then there's also all these splashes of red, sometimes a lot of blood. <laughs> but it's um, it's kind of like almost a, a film noir look, because I don't really like the look of gloomy things. Like uh, Dark Souls, I guess would be an example, where everything's just always like, very dark and dreary and cloudy and rainy. It was kind of these depressing looking environments. I don't like that, but the visual style of this just really like caught my eye and made me interested in it, even though I'm not typically that big of a fan of these like grid-based, turn-based tactics games. I get kind of bored with the combat pretty quickly. And it's also partially a roguelike, which is also something I tend to not be that interested in. But, you know, it was 13 bucks on sale. I figured at worst, I play it for a few hours, lose interest, but hey, I'm supporting, you know, a small dev that was obviously trying to do something very different and unique visually, as opposed to this, the kind of, you know, normal, like, bland pixel style or, like, you know, sort of low-res style of a lot of indie games that you get. This was something, you know, obviously a lot more different. I really respect the effort to do something just much more interesting like that. But the basics of it is that there's a story... It doesn't seem to be real deep. It's just this odd thing about this, like, child who was... I'm not even sure what was unique about the child, but he got kind of, like, locked up in a cellar and tortured and stuff. And now, because he turned into, like, this sort of, like, I don't know, like, a vessel for 
what they just call suffering, like suffering with a capital S is apparently going to like invade the world through this child and do something terrible. I'm not even sure. It's kind of confusing and probably not that important. It's just the kind of thing to give you sort of a, a through line through the game to give you a reason to be like doing what you're doing. It's also very like, not just in like the colors, it's a very dark game in general. There's no like moments of levity or anything like that or humor or happy moments or anything like that. It is just all doom and gloom kind of wow. all the time. It sounds like uh, like a great like, like this is the thing. I mean, um, this is the person who played uh, The Last of Us Part Two in the first six months of a global pandemic. So like and I had people tell me like, <laughs> I don't I don't know if I can play that game right now with everything going on. And I 100% understand that. So when you're talking to me about a game that has, you know, those type of themes and like there's no jokes being, you know, told whatsoever. The Last of Us Part 2 had levity at points. Uh they they were there would be jokes uh, you know, put in there. But uh yeah, I'm not I'm not opposed to a game that, you know, sticks to their theme and um, I love, you know what this kind of reminds me of it just in your descriptions as well as, um, in, and I, I'll full disclosure, I was looking through like the steam page and the Nintendo switch page, because as you said, it was on sale. It's, it's no longer on sale, but it was, it was on sale for like 50% off. And it kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, oh, chalice. What is that? A uh, massive chalice. I think it was called. Um, which was a roguelike style tactics game where you controlled um, you controlled your units on the board, but like essentially an age would end and your characters would die and then their kids would, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. So like the family lineage would continue through these these battles um, and you were trying to fight off this weird bug like enemy and this kind of reminds me of that and that it's a tactics game and it does have some roguelike elements, correct? Where there's some loops and stuff. Yes. The basic thing is that there was this woman or kind of being like a mortal being called the mother who was fighting against um, suffering or whatever the big bad is, but she essentially reached like the end of her power and sort of kind of passed on. She's at, sort of around as like, just like, like this glowing red figure still. But the units you use are all her daughters, which is just essentially clones of her that you birth. So it's actually also kind of adds to the visual style in an interesting way because they all have different, they can have different outfits and hairstyles, eye color, but their faces are all exactly the same. So you really do get this feeling of it's just this like kind of a clone army, almost like a Star Wars kind of thing where the clones, you have like individual like hairstyles or armor, stuff like that. But take the helmets off and look at them. It's all the same face. And so the basics of it is you got your standard kind of grid-based tactics things where there's different character classes. Start out with three, the Soul Slinger, who's got dual pistols, the Blade Master, who's got a, like a, what's it called? Naginata, I think, is the type of weapon. Uh, it's basically like a big, like, crazy blade on the end of a pole. Mm-hmm. And the shield bearer who's got a spear and a shield and that's like kind of your tank your blade masters your strongest dps but is mostly melee and they're in a little more fragile 
and of course the Soul Slinger is sort of your, your range support unit. Then later on, actually just last night, I unlocked the Scythe Dance, yeah, Scythe Dancer, which is a pretty cool unit that can like steal other units' armor and stuff like that. And I haven't really gotten too much into her yet, but she seems really fun and interesting. And then there's you know your various enemy types, melee and ranged stuff like that. Yeah, you know, all the stuff you're kind of used to. And they're also all like very like kind of like nightmarish creatures. You got a lot of these these cultists that have those big like beaked masks, like the plague doctor thing. And then all these like crazy tentacle monsters and stuff, sort of like Cthulhu esque. So it's all again like adding to this theme of just you know darkness essentially, darkness and evil. But what's really I think caught my attention and made me love this game so much, to my surprise, because I you know had no idea if I'd even like the game for more than a couple hours at most, but it has a dynamic timeline where instead of just the standard like Fire Emblem thing where everybody takes a turn on your side, then all the enemies take a turn, you know, everybody moves once, attacks once, etc., rinse, repeat. Uh, that's, I think, something that always caused me to be kind of bored and lose focus. But with this, it adds a lot more like strategy to it, a lot of things you have to think about, because you have... Um, a resource called AP, which is both your movement and your abilities. So you start out with 100. Later in the game, as your units level up, they might get traits that give them a little more. But the key is that if you use, if you have 50 AP left when you end your turn with that unit, then they only go halfway down the timeline. But if you go over 50 or under 50 AP, then they go all the way to the end of the timeline and therefore act a lot later than they would otherwise. So you have a lot of strategy just from that, deciding, you know, do you want to do extra moves and kill off a unit and act later, or, you know, do some damage and then be able to act again sooner? But that's all obviously very dependent on the general state of your units, the enemy units, like whether they're going to be attacked and such. And also there's the usual thing with dynamic timelines. You can there's moves that can accelerate units or push units back, stuff like that. Other units have different um different weight periods. So there's some units that are maybe less dangerous but act much more often, and then more dangerous units will take a lot longer to act. So you can, you know, kind of put off dealing with them for a little while. But if you do let them act and attack you, then it can be very bad news. But one of the other really cool elements about it is these reaction and interruption skills that you can do and so essentially an interruption might be like the soul slinger can set herself to respond to an enemy attack on an ally she'll interrupt that attack and stop it completely and also shoot the enemy or there might be a reaction where if a unit is attacked by another and by, by an ally then an allied unit set to react will do a follow-up attack to it but the key to that is that those things cost a percentage of your maximum health. And there is, if you're playing on the original difficulty, though they did add an easier mode later, but on the original difficulty, there is absolutely no way to heal normally. The only way to heal a unit is to sacrifice one of your other units of an equal or greater level. Uh-oh. So, yeah, kind of a big deal and can actually add some interesting strategy in itself, which I actually screwed up last night going into boss, because I had one unit that was about to go to level 10, and I had multiple units that was ready to sacrifice at level 9, 
but I decided, oh, I'm going to wait until I do one more mission so that I can heal the extra damage that I might take on that mission. But then, of course, I leveled up, and suddenly my level 9s can't heal her anymore. So I went into a boss fight with half health on that unit. So it's kind of like a balancing act there of whether you want to heal them up right away, either to keep them from dying in a particularly tough mission, or you know take that risk where you know, try to hold off on healing as long as possible so you get the maximum value out of it. And also, when you sacrifice a daughter to heal another, it also adds a trait to the other do- to the surviving daughter that can like increase health, increase damage, stuff like that. So even if you don't necessarily like need to heal someone, that could be something you want to do as well, especially if you do the dream mode, the easier mode where they heal up after every mission 50%. So you still might want to sacrifice just to boost their stats a bit. Uh, let's see. And there's where the roguelike comes in is that each area is called an era for reasons I'm not entirely cleared. But it's got, you know, a boss at the end, and there's it's essentially divided into seven days. And each day, each daughter can do one mission, depending if there's enough missions to do for all your daughters. Because sometimes there's one, sometimes there's up to like two or three. And basically, once you get to the fourth day, you discover the boss. And on that run, or any future runs, you can then fight the boss anytime you want. But when you get to the seventh day, you have to fight the boss. So you always have a limited number of time to level up your daughters, um, get other ones leveled up to sacrifice to heal the ones you want to use the boss fight and stuff. So you kind of have a balancing act there as well. So I'm curious, when it comes to the reaction stuff, so a couple couple of points on, on what you were discussing. So the reaction stuff, is that similar to like XCOM's Overwatch, which was a very simple like, hit the Y button and set the set the cone of vision or, or is this a little more complex than, than that? Um, I think it's similar to that. It's usually based on a range, like it'll be a six square, seven squares, etc. Um, was there like a, a penalty to using overwatch in XCOM? Like a um, reason that you wouldn't just set them on, on that for every turn. Well, you you were it, it took up your action. So if you hadn't yeah. used an action, like you could move. Uh, XCOM used like more of like a a range and like a two step action. So if it, you had a you had your range and then your one step action allowed you to move and get into cover, and your second step allowed you to attack. Now some units required um, both action points to to attack. But uh, for the most part, you could move and then go into Overwatch. Um, I think it was the sniper class where you you couldn't you couldn't uh, shoot with the sniper weapon. It's one of those things where uh, it was very much based on I don't have anything to shoot um, reliably from this angle, so I'm just going to put it in Overwatch and let let the alien run towards me, which was normally what would happen, depending on the alien. But that's usually what what would happen. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of like that though in general it kind of goes on with the like the general theme of the game mechanics where you can essentially do like more in a turn that you can often do in something like XCOM or Fire Emblem or whatever because you do you can often do like up to maybe three attacks in a turn depending on which ones you use because they do cost different amounts of AP but then of course you run into the penalty for going under 50 AP and such, but reactions don't cost any AP. So you can do like 
as many attacks and movement as you want, and then still do, you can set up like a reaction and an interruption, which, okay, which is cool, except then you're sacrificing 15% health off of your character, unhealable health, essentially. So there's very much a, uh, a risk-reward thing with that. But it does allow you to do to really plan things out. Instead of having you know, just one attack per turn, you can do potentially you know, multiple things with multiple characters, or you know do one thing, then put yourself in position to maybe go all out the next turn. And of course, you know, with like the reaction interruptions, you have to really think about it and make sure that you're actually going to use them before that character acts again or else you're just going to essentially sacrifice a bunch of your health for nothing at all, which especially becomes risky once you get start to get like lower health, because then it's, do I essentially really only want to do it if you're absolutely certain you're going to get used out of it? Which is also where like the dream mode, the easier mode, really comes into play with the healing. Not just that you don't have to sacrifice daughters to heal, but also that you can be a lot more liberal with the, like, the, with the skills that cost health. Because you don't have to worry about, oh, this health isn't going to heal. As long as you don't go below 50% health, you'll heal up and be fine. But um, I, wanted to, oh yeah, I wanted to get back to the roguelike part of it. Basically, whenever you, usually whenever you complete a mission, you get some of this currency called shards, which is used to activate remembrances, which is essentially the bonuses that you get to use at the start of the next run. But you don't get to actually spend the shards that you've earned until the run is over and you start the new one. So there's kind of accumulated in the background. And if you either run out of daughters and the resource to spawn more of them, or if you lose to a boss fight, then the run automatically ends. Or you can just end the run at any time if you just feel like, okay, there's not really any point in trying to grind things out further. I'd just be better off starting over with all of these extra advantages. And so far, I've been averaging the first two bosses I got through in one run each. You know, I started over after the first boss, then beat the second boss in the first in the second run. Third run, I tried to skip right to the area where the third boss was and just got destroyed in the first day. It was just a complete fiasco. <laughs> so I think I'm on run. I beat the third boss and I faced and lost to the fourth boss. So I think I'm on run five now. If all, everything goes well, there's five areas total and I think six bosses. So I'm hoping to be able to get this done and maybe seven runs if things go well, maybe. <laughs> so far, I feel like it's really given me all the tools I need to you know, to react to, because it, it's a pretty difficult game. It can be very punishing if you're not careful, but if you are careful and take the time to think things through, I feel like it's given me all the tools I need to succeed. So it's a really nice balance there. I think that's also you know, part of what is really keeping me engaged is that I don't mind difficult things as long as I enjoy the thing that I'm doing. Like I don't, I wouldn't play Dark Souls or anything like that because I just don't find that style of combat to be all that fun in the first place. So doing that while getting my ass kicked, not so great. But with this, because it is really keeping my focus and keeping me interested, even though the missions aren't like super different from each other, there's a few types like you know hunting all the enemies or surviving a certain length of time than escaping or escorting this thing called a bright soul across the map to a safe zone because then you can sacrifice the bright soul to gain a resurrection token to resurrect your daughters, which is another thing you can do at the start of each run is that one of the things you can gain through the remembrances is more resurrection tokens. 
so you can actually resurrect some of your daughters from previous runs so you're not just starting from scratch. But then you do have the issue of they might be farther leveled up, so then you have to level up more daughters to so you can actually like be prepared to heal them at some point. I kind of compared it in Discord yesterday, I think it was, or the day before, to essentially like feel like I was fattening pigs up for market by leveling my other daughters just to sacrifice them. Oh, no. Well, because you use them to heal uh, your other... the So the longer... Uh, again, this this sounds a lot like Massive Chalice, where you are you aren't sacrificing uh, people, but you're trying to keep um, a line alive as long as possible because they would they would be uh, you know passing down positive traits, and and you could and I think Crusader Kings did a little bit of this as well, where where you know you had what there's been a lot of games actually have been doing this sort of lineage the passing down of 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 traits positive and negative and that sort of micromanaging so it sounds like the longer you keep a daughter alive you can kind of build out this like really powerful character and i mean just like XCOM if you have a character that you've had since the beginning of the game it's going to be much more powerful than one you just recruited and losing one of those folks can be really devastating so do you find that if you were to lose one of your higher powered uh, characters, would that kind of affect your game in a, in a negative way? Like you would, you would hit a wall and have to go back to grinding or something? Potentially. If it's just one, then I might be okay depending on when I lose the character. If it's like early in an area and I still have multiple days before I have to fight the boss, I might be able to get one of those rescue missions where I can you know, sacrifice the bright soul and resurrect that daughter. But if you start to lose like multiple ones or they get too low health early and you're not going to have the other daughters to sacrifice to heal them, then like that's what happened in my third run is basically first first mission I tried with like new new daughters, they just all wiped. It was a complete disaster. Then I, I also did a mission with the ones that I'd resurrected, my more powerful ones, and I think one died and the two other took a lot of hits. So it's basically, like, I knew there was just no way in hell I was going to recover from all of that. It does give you, because you'll have, think up to, right now I can get four resurrection tokens at the beginning of a run. If I get, if I discover the boss in the fifth area, I believe that'll probably give me a fifth one. So it does give you some flexibility, especially if you can accomplish a couple of rescue missions. But there definitely is a uh, a point where if you just lose too much, then you're just screwed. At that point, you might better off just giving up and starting over so you don't waste your time. Mm. Yeah, and the lack of healing options, that doesn't necessarily like push me away from the game. I have it on my wish list. I'll likely pick it up um, during the summer sale. I'm, I'm kind of got a couple games that I'm looking at to uh, make time for in the summer. But um, not being able to heal in a traditional tactical sense of like this unit has in the case of fire emblem, like a, like a staff that they can use to heal or a spell. Um, or in the case of XCOM or resident evil, they have like a healing mist that they spray. The futures is wonderful. By the way, these, these healing mists, uh, can't wait. Um, you know, that, that is, it's a crutch for me because I know I can be impatient when it comes to tactical games. I love it when a plan comes together, but the plan doesn't usually (laughs) 
come together <laughs> because I am so impatient. But it sounds like this game rewards patience. Um, I like the idea of a dynamic timeline. If you had asked me or told me there was a dynamic timeline before I had uh, started getting deeper into Ruined King, which I've been playing for the last couple of weeks to to talk about on the show, um, I would I would say, oh, I'm not too you know fond of a dynamic timeline, but Rune King has kind of taught me how to read it and and make it work to to my advantage. So uh, I think you're right. Like having that, you take a turn, your opponent take a turn, sort of you know analog approach of you go, I go, you go, I go, very predictable. Um, I think a dynamic timeline might be a nice change of pace. You know, having played a lot of Fire Emblem in, in the past, uh, it might be. It, I think Rune King has taught me it's nice to try new things, especially with, uh, you know, t- that taking a turn-based combat RPG and turning it into a dynamic timeline. You have you now have like a, a tactics game uh, you know, similar to Fire Emblem or, or XCOM and, and doing something completely different where it's dynamic as opposed to, you know, now that I think about it, um, I might be misremembering, but didn't that XCOM spinoff have a dynamic timeline or was that there was something different about that one? And now I can't remember. I'm not going to look it up because uh, I, I, for some reason, it's it's popping in my head. But it, it might have been something else that was different. A lot of people didn't like it. Oh, you know what? I think it was because they were set characters. That was the thing people didn't like. Uh, it, it was because there was like eight characters you couldn't custom. You could customize them, but you couldn't like name them. You know, you couldn't make them whoever you wanted to be. Like, uh, oh. <laughs> that's a staple of, of XCOM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The cast of your favorite yeah. podcast, or the cast of your favorite Marvel movie, stuff like that. You you couldn't do that. It was it was a very set roster. But um, yeah, other side does sound really cool. And I mean, you know, you chat about it in in the Discord. It's I think it's a lot of people have kind of latched onto it. And you know, it was a game that came out in uh, you know summer of 2020. So it's been out for a couple years. Um, it's on every platform. It looks like PC switch, uh, PS4 and Xbox. So I've come to really understand over the past year or so that the dynamic timeline is like a huge thing for me as far as like being interested because I have the same issue with that. You mentioned in tactics games where I get impatient. I'm just like, Oh, I just want to, you know, get these units out there make my moves and I have to wait for the enemy move. So then I just want to like make, you know, do my things again quickly, just get through the mission. But with, a, with something with a dynamic timeline, giving me something other to, else to think about, I think that just makes it so much more engaging and interesting for me and gives me a real reason to, to actually like slow down and think about what I'm doing. Cause another thing is that like, I've played a little bit of ruin King and got frustrated with how incredibly freaking long that first dungeon is. It's so long. It's like two or three hours long, I think. Kind of drove me nuts. But I would like to maybe play it again sometime, because it does use some interesting stuff with the timeline. But obligatory Trails reference here, because, you know, I'm me, but that has a dynamic timeline in a you know, turn-based RPG system. And that's another thing where turn-based combat in RPGs, JRPGs, has always been kind of a a mixed bag for me. I love Chrono Trigger, which is well, not technically turn-based, ATB, but close enough. But like Final Fantasy X didn't interest me. Persona 5 I loved because it's very, very quick, very snappy. 
But again, it's something I can be very kind of bored with the repetition of. But in Trails, where it does have a lot of different elements of like turn order and things that can affect turn order and like different bonuses depending on when you take your turn, stuff like that, that keeps me engaged even when I binged, you know, nine games in a row for like 550 something hours in like four months. I was still really interested in the combat the entire time through all that because it is a lot more than just take your turn, make your move, wait for the enemy to make their move. There's just so much more to think about. And even though I can get easily overwhelmed by like overly complex systems or too many things that I have to keep track of, I think dynamic timelines, especially in a like you know in these turn-based games where it is this you know like everything is constantly pausing, then that does really give me like the right mix of things that I have to think about, but also I don't feel like there's too many things to think about at once. I can take my time, look at all my options, stuff like that, and I've kind of realized that that's probably a not a deal breaker for me, but a huge benefit for anything that's has like a kind of a tactical feel to it is that having this dynamic timeline is maybe my favorite thing like that uh, a system like this could have. No, it's, it sounds like it's uh, it, it's a really neat game. I, I mean, I love the art style, the art style. Uh, my, my biggest question with the art style is, as you said, it's very dark. It's um, it's very, you know, Sin City-esque, uh, you know, noir type setup. I, you're playing on PC? I should have asked that from the beginning. Uh, yes, I am. Yeah, so you you got a monitor. You're like, you know, PC setup. You're up, you're up, you're up against the monitor, but you're close. You're close. I love playing my games on a TV from the couch four to six feet away. Um, do you find that if you were to play this game further away from the monitor, could it be tough to see more of the elements and action on screen? Like sometimes if the, if they do like a black and white game like this, um, I, you can lose some of the details, you know, if you're not, you know, close up and, and, and whatnot, do do you, do you notice that? Or is it designed in a way that it like it makes stuff pop so that you can see the action. You can see your choices being reflected on the screen. I don't think it would be an issue on like a TV, as long as it's not like, you know, a, a tiny TV you're sitting far away from. I think it would also be fine in, um, in handheld mode on switch. Cause even though it's a dark game, it's not like super li- like low brightness, hard to see the colors are dark, but everything kind of pops and stuff. So you can actually see the outlines for movement, for hitboxes and stuff like that, the different UI elements. So I don't think it's really going to be an issue if you want to play it on, you know, a TV several feet away from a couch. The only thing is there are occasionally times where there'll be like an enemy, like a, a red square with a skull on it, indicating where an enemy is going to do a delayed attack. That's another thing you do. You have certain attacks that happen on a delay so you have time to react to it or plan things out stuff like that and when you do that then it can be hard to see like if you're trying to lay down an attack that has like multiple squares that is hitting that can be kind of difficult to see but that's an issue on pc as well so i don't think it's much of a difference on console or switch handheld cool all right well i mean it's definitely a game i look forward to checking out uh this summer but um, if you're interested, it's other side, it's on steam, Nintendo switch, PS4, Xbox. So check that out. 
Oh, she mentioned that it's spelled other C-I-D-E. Oh, yes, that's a good point. Uh, am I pronouncing it correctly, though, or do they just, it's... Yeah, yeah it's other side. Other side, but it, you're right. It's spelled with a C, not an S. Uh, so definitely make sure when you're... I'm sure if you if you go into Steam and, and type in other side with an S, it, I, it's got to be on the top five. <laughs> uh, yeah, usually modern search algorithms are good at figuring that stuff out. Yeah. Moving on, uh, before we get to the news, though, uh, I did want to talk about, we hinted at this at the beginning of the show, but our game club manager, that what is that? What is that? What does that mean? Well, it means that uh, Jimmy, uh, G- Jimmy here is guiding us through 13 Sentinels, Aegis Rim. You'll, you'll like to know that it took me a month, but I did it. Uh, <laughs> you know, after hearing Aegis pronounced a couple times in the game, I... I now have committed it to memory, so everyone can stop making jokes about how often Ryan's going to call it different things. It's Aegis Rim. Um, we are playing 13 Sentinels for Game Club. I've been talking about this a little bit in the Patreon Mini as well as the show. Um, and we are now heading towards Milestone 4. Uh, essentially, the structure has been Jim plays ahead in the game. Uh, he kind of sets our path because this is a very dynamic game that can be played I, I want to say disjointed because like you can kind of pick up the story all over the place as you kind of put it all together through um, the, the stories of these thir- it's 13 characters or that's just a guess because it, there's 13 in, in the name. But uh, yes. OK, so oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, I should have just rolled with it and been like, yeah, 13. I know exactly how many characters are in this game I've been playing <laughs> on and off for the last month. Um so the story can be kind of like gathered together in this very disjointed way, but Jim is kind of guiding us so that everybody participating in the game club can kind of uh, stick to the same path. Um, and each week we get our homework. We do the homework. Sometimes we finish it on time. Sometimes we jump in like a day or two late. Me, I did that this week. Um, and you you might have noticed the game club Discord channel. That is where we kind of discuss the game club as a whole. But then each week, Jim will set up like a new milestone thread to discuss that section of gameplay starts it off with a summary and really we haven't tested this out, but really the cool part is, is that anyone can jump in at any time. Uh, we do three hour chunks. So right now we're heading towards like hour 12. So really anybody could jump in and and you could, you know, jump into each milestone and have a conversation. The people that are in there will get a notification and yeah, like it's just, it's been a lot of fun. And I know we've talked about 13 Sentinels in the past and, uh, you know, Jim has been on, I think has been on the show to talk about it specifically. And, uh, yeah, it's been fun. It's a very different game. Um, I guess it's like a mixture between like a dynamic tactics game and a visual novel. Is that, is that the best way to put it? First, I want to say that apparently the word of the week for the show is dynamic because I've probably said it about 50 times while talking about the other side. But yes, it's kind of a combination of a strategy game and also a well, sort of a combo between a visual novel and like a point-and-click adventure. As far as like puzzles, it's very light and it's more likely like you run into a couple of things where it's kind of obtuse, but... I think that's just like weird design choices rather than an attempt to actually make you like think deeply about stuff. But it does have that kind of thing of like use this thought on this person person to continue. 
kind of like a, an old point-and-click adventure game, like a Curse of Monkey Island or whatever. But it is mostly just uh, you know, just sitting there, watching scenes, clicking on things occasionally, and just listening to characters talk. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that might sound... Uh, again, I don't want to say boring because it's not, it's, it's almost too harsh, but, um, it's one of those things where like on paper, it's sound like you got to lead with the fact that the story they're telling because it is disjointed. Sometimes the presentation can kind of get in the way of like, but is it an, it is an interesting story. Like there's some really interesting mysteries that are happening. And I, and again, like to describe them, it's essentially without spoiling, it's essentially these I, I guess high schoolers that are having dreams about fighting, you know, kaiju in these giant mechs. And that's where the dynamic combat comes in, which um, I personally really enjoy the combat. Uh, I find that we're only in the first sort of section. Um, I'm sure it'll get more complex as we go. And, and they have added new layers as we went. Like um, I think the most recent one we did, I did for milestone three was uh, you had these flyer units that were super strong and your anti-air weapons at this stage in the game, maybe they get better later on are, you know, they're serviceable, but not to take out such a, such a behemoth. So they basically say like, well, you're going to want to use these special skills to ground these enemies and then go in and pummel them with your melee attacks and stuff to be able to do massive damage uh, to these units. And again, like just one of those examples of that, you know, those tactics that you're using and, it really does feel like the combat is a part of the game. I think you're you're getting less, at least at this stage, and Jim, you can correct me, you're getting less story from the combat sections. It kind of feels like those combat sections are more like, oh man, I can't believe we're fighting, you know, giant giant monsters in these robots. I know we're going to get get a bit further, but like, and maybe I'm not paying enough attention, but they, in the early section of the game, that's what it feels like. Yeah, I would say the first, five missions especially there's almost no story outside of just sort of the basics of oh hey we're all together in these mechs fighting the kaiju now but like in the missions you're we're going to be playing this week there's definitely like a bit of story element to it and certainly late game you definitely get more story as you because i mean it's kind of the obvious way they want you to be learning about these things through the narrative sections because like, it's not really a spoiler to say what's it's kind of obvious this is probably the case that the battle missions you're doing take place after all of the narrative sections. So if they were kind of talking about story like right away in the early missions, then it would kind of ruin the surprise or the process of learning about all this stuff through the narrative. Exactly. And I mean, learning these things through the remembrance section, which is the visual novel stuff, that's been kind of the best part of the game club is I, I went out <laughs> you're gonna laugh I went out and bought a physical notebook because I wanted to write my notes and, I, and I'm not the only one that did this for the game club yep. I wanted to write my notes down and I, I might be the only one that sees these notes and a couple things I realized I really enjoy uh, using uh, a pen and paper again the other thing is I have not used a pen and paper in, in a long time it's almost scary how terrible my writing is. I really need to work on that. <laughs> so by the time this game club's over, just watch my penmanship just soar. Um, I will stop write, looking like I'm writing prescriptions for a doctor's office in a little bit, I hope. Uh, but it's been it's been really nice to take those notes and just 
you know, put asterisks next to these questions of like, who is this person and why do they look like this, this other character and, and, and seeing those revelations unpack as you go forward. And it really become, and and even early on, because it's so disjointed, they can kind of move these moments further up on the timeline of discovery to be like, I, I understand why there are giant robots, but why are they appearing all of a sudden and and where are these monsters coming from and what is this little robot doing and 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 why are we suddenly you know back in time and forward in time and and this is all stuff that takes place right at the be- in the prologue uh which was milestone one that we did and it just it's i've been talking to people about why this worked as a game club because it, it was kind of the perfect storm of the game had been out for a while on playstation 4 um uh I've been keeping an eye on sales to let people know if, if people are holding off on jumping in, cause this is a full price game. Uh, and then it launched on switch and it was and you know, we had always talked about doing some sort of playthrough and uh, you know, the release on switch kind of renewed the interest of like, well, you can have people who have played the game, jump back in on their PlayStation. You have people like me who picked it up on PlayStation while it was on sale. And then you have, you know, newcomers who might want to pick it up on switch. So it kind of like, it brings together folks who have played it already and folks who want to play it again or, or play for the first time. And it's, it's worked out quite well. Like I almost wonder, like, are we going to hit another one of those uh, moments where we can play a game like this together? Uh, You know, I guess another example would have been like something to do with the mass effect trilogy, you know, a a franchise people love and, and, uh, and has been, you know, renewed interest thanks to a remaster. Like I, I, I do want to do more of this for sure, but and I'm not trying to rush through 13 Sentinels. I think the pace has worked really well. Um, three, especially for me, three hours a week is great. I know for some folks it might be like, wow, three hours a week. I, I think early on there were some some folks who were like, ah, you know, three hours is not a lot. Like that's that's a couple. That's like one session, and I you you want to know what's going on in the story. But I've actually enjoyed like playing my section, stopping coming into the discussion and going from there. It's, it's been a nice pace that's been set. Yeah. So it's, well, obviously it's very interesting for me to just watch everybody's conversations <laughs> as they go through the story with me knowing the answers to almost everything that they're asking about. Obviously I played it about almost a year and a half ago. So my memories aren't clear in all the details, but that's certainly fun. But when I played it, I didn't have anybody to talk it with, talk about it with. And I actually did think, kind of late in the game, so I didn't bother starting, but I did think about how I wish I had from the beginning been keeping notes like you guys are, just to write down like my thoughts, my predictions, my theories, all that kind of stuff. Because that is, you know, I mean some like some people in the Discord said they're just kind of enjoying just enjoying the ride, not thinking about it too much, but others do really love just kind of analyzing every detail and trying to figure out the mystery for themselves. And I would have really liked to have kind of like had a record of things like what I was thinking as I went through it. But it is obviously a very different experience because I played it in about a week and a half, I think. Well, you guys are all playing it over the course of it's probably going to be 10 to 11 weeks. So I was even if I had like, you know, all these questions in my head, I could just, you know, keep on playing. And if I had questions the end of the night, I'd know that I'd at least play again tomorrow. But for you guys... Yeah, you don't really have anything you can do except just write it down and think about it for a week. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's 
I know for me, like I, I always knew the pace would work really well for me because like to inject another game to play for a set amount of time each week. And and I think last week was, was the first time that I had to like kind of push myself forward a, a day. And I haven't even had a chance to jump into the thread and sort of, I, I dumped a little bit of my thoughts, but I have to, I have to go through my notes um, and I'll do that before the next milestone hits. But I, I have really enjoyed discussing it week to week. And you can see that anticipation towards the, the milestone ending when in, in the game club channel, where people are like, oh my gosh, this section. And like, we're not saying like you can't discuss it whatsoever, but like there are a lot of these moments where people are experiencing something in their playthrough and hinting towards, oh, I can't wait to discuss this when it when it comes up. So it has been something completely new for us uh, uh, in terms of the gamers in. I, I highly doubt this is the first time a game club has been run this way. I've not, you know, seen it run this way elsewhere, but the... Uh, um, I'm glad we were able to, to set it up and, and play this game. I think it's a game I would not have played otherwise um, if it weren't for the show. And, you know, even even you, Jim, coming on the show and talking about it, I think without the game club, it would have been I needed that push. And I think it it, it kind of came from like me returning to Xenoblade Chronicles 2 for the Patreon mini and doing like a the update corner playing through all of Tales of Arise. I don't think I would have finished Tales of Arise if it weren't for the fact that I was trying to update everybody week to week and same thing for 13 sentinels i it's it's so not a game that i would normally play but i have to state like i am really enjoying it and the story is starting we just did a chapter where you play as a you play as one of the characters who's like trying to learn where her friend went and it's it's kind of like a detective style gameplay where you are just talking to people and solving these small problems to be able to progress your investigation and it was it was it was awesome. It was really cool. And they introduced a new character, like you know, Watson to your homes type thing. And and uh, ah, it's so good. It's a lot of fun. It's completely different from anything I've ever played. So uh, if you haven't played Thirteen Sentinels, now is a great time to jump in. It would not take you very long to catch up to us. We're only about twelve hours in, and all the milestone discussion threads, if they have archived, you can reactivate them. Jump in. I'm sure there are plenty of people who would love to jump back in and, 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 uh, and have those conversations with you. Um, I think we have about maybe four, five or six active people playing right now, which, which does lead to a very, you know, healthy conversation Sunday mornings. I should mention that's when our milestones end. So Sunday morning, Jim will post the, uh, the new thread for us to discuss, but, uh, yeah, it's been a really good, uh, really good conversation. Yeah. And I, I absolutely understand why people would look at this game and not be sure about it. I mean, I, wasn't entirely sure about it. And I should actually give a shout out to uh, Gordon or Opera 707, the, um, who has, who was essentially the one who played it first and was talking about it so much that I was like, okay, fine. It's on sale. I'll buy it. I'll play, I'll play it sometime. And then I end up just kind of having a gap and starting it and absolutely loving it. But certainly a lot of people aren't going to be immediately attracted to the ideal of something that is, you know, at least like, two-thirds, three-quarters of visual novel. It's not something that, you know, everybody's going to think they're going to like, but I will say that it is very interesting, very well-written, and I would really, really recommend people at least look at it and think about it. It does go on sale pretty often, maybe not right now, because it did just release on Switch, so they might kind of hold off even on, like, PS4 sales for a little while, just to keep, you know, the price parity. 
but I'm sure at some point we'll go on sale again for half price, maybe in less than half price. And it's, you probably will not regret it. You might, but (laughs) there's a good chance that I think most people that do enjoy like good story in game, however story is told in game, will probably enjoy this. Yeah, I agree. And um, in terms of sales, like I said, uh, if we see a sale on like the official store, or, um, you know, I, I know Whirlwind's been kind of keeping an eye on the Canadian side of things. I've seen the Switch version uh, go down by 10, 20 bucks Canadian. Um, so it's not impossible to even get the Switch version on sale. Uh, but if we see a major sale either on the PlayStation or the eShop, we'll definitely uh, put it on Twitter into the Discord as well for people interested in jumping in. I, I picked it up on sale um, back in November. I think I got it for maybe $30 Canadian. So it was 50 bucks off. So like Jim said, it does go on sale. It does get a pretty steep discount because it is a full priced game. Um, so uh, yeah, we'll definitely keep people posted. And I would be surprised if it didn't go on sale before our game club concluded. So plenty of time to jump in. Uh, and speaking of time, uh, we should move into the news. But before we do, I want to give a shout out to CRV ATV, our May patron, the uh, patron of the month. Thank you so much for supporting the Gamers Inn at patreon.com slash the Gamers Inn. If you become a patron, you can get early access to our TGI Patreon mini. Uh, I haven't done one in a couple weeks because it's been uh, pretty busy here at the inn and uh, it just in general. So uh, I hope to get back to that this week. But we've got plenty of folks to shout out over the next couple months. We really do appreciate all the support. And again, if you want to join those lovely folks, you can go to patreon.com slash thegamersin. And with the news, uh, this was this was one where I don't think it impacts either of us, or I'm sure it impacts some at least some of our listeners, but Fortnite is back on Apple devices thanks to the cloud. Uh, Microsoft announced today that you can play Fortnite at XCOM or XCOM Xbox.com. <laughs> I've got tactics on the mind. Uh, Xbox.com slash play for free. You do not need Game Pass. You just need a Microsoft account and a Android or iOS device. You can even play on a Windows PC as well, but uh, it's not barred from the stores on Windows or Android. Actually, I think it might. I can't remember if Fortnite is was removed from the 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 Play Store. They removed it. I don't I don't remember if it, it went back or not. I'm not sure. I haven't honestly paid much attention since it stopped being front page news because I don't play Fortnite and I kind of think the entire fight, while interesting in some sort of like like larger uh, conversation about the the what you know Google Play and Apple charge for. Uh, you know the thirty percent cut they take off of all games on their platforms. You know the the specifics of this with like Fortnite, I just couldn't care less. Yeah, no, I I think you're right. Like the lawsuit has certainly exited the mainstream media side of of gaming, and I I don't even know where they're at right now. I think the I think they're working through appeals right now. Um, it it feels like it's been a couple years. Honestly, <laughs> uh, I don't think we covered it last year. Uh, it was definitely during the pandemic that the court case was going on because I remember it was all through Zoom and there were some complications there. Uh, but 
this is a pretty big deal. I mean, it is surprising that it took this long for Epic to sort of work out like a cloud version of the game uh, for iOS devices. And um, I think there was some deal with NVIDIA at some point where Fortnite was there, but it, it sounds like this is a this is a step forward where Microsoft might be looking to uh, utilize its technology for free to play games. I don't know what kind of cut Microsoft is getting if someone like purchases something from like I can't imagine Microsoft is getting nothing from this deal because uh, this is this is big like to offer it for free. They must be getting they must have got some money from Epic for this to happen. So, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure how cloud gaming works exactly as far as like the microtransactions. Like where's that money getting funneled through? If it's being played through Xbox uh, cloud, is that, are you making purchases through Xbox or is it directly through Epic? I, That's the real question. That is a good question. I'm not too sure. I, I feel like the way Epic would have wanted it set up is they'd want it going through their sort of pay processors and and whatnot um it might depend on what microsoft is asking if it does go through their payment processors because epic was never saying oh we don't want to we we would like to avoid paying apple and google completely they were willing to do it they just objected to the 30 percent cut that they were taking if if those uh platforms had allowed them to take to sell um, their microtransactions at a lower cut, I don't think this thing would have ever come up. So it probably it might depend on just you know what Microsoft is demanding from Epic for this. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: um, you can play Fortnite for free through your web browser without needing an Xbox Live Gold or Xbox Game Pass Ultimate subscription. All you need is a Microsoft account with an Xbox profile. So it sounds like it indeed goes through the Xbox pay processes so because they don't like on consoles they never fought that battle i think they came up with a you know that's a they they came up with an argument for why they were going after apple but not xbox and playstation i know a lot of people had issues with 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 that you know picking and choosing of a fight uh because they all charge 30 percent. so i think there was a specific reasoning yeah i forget exactly but uh I can't even speculate because I completely forgot what it is, but (laughs) there was a reason. I didn't think that the reason really held water. I think it was honestly more of a case of that wasn't a fight they wanted to get into or that they thought they could win. I think 30% cut for anything is just ridiculous, whether it's, you know, Xbox, PlayStation or the, the phones or valve it just does not need to be that much unless they are really, really giving like some sort of serious value in return for that, which I don't think any of them do. They are really just, they're just storefronts, payment processors and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, they do need to pay for all that infrastructure and stuff, but they make so much money just taking a cut as a middleman, like just absolutely ridiculous amounts of money. That's why I believe that when the whole Activision Blizzard thing happened, it was said that Microsoft with Activision Blizzard will be the third highest gaming company by revenue behind Sony with Apple as number one, even though Apple doesn't actually, you know, make any games. They just act as a middleman on the app store for all the iOS games. And they are apparently the largest company by gaming revenue just doing that. So you can't tell me that they actually have a legitimate need 
to take 30% of it, of everything to support like what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, it's one of those things that, uh, it's been 30% for a long time and, and anytime. Actually, wait, I want to correct myself. Maybe it was 10 cent. That was the biggest. That makes more sense. Oh yes. Yeah. That makes sense. So I'm apparently completely wrong with the Apple thing, but they do make an absolute shitload of money off of apps and stuff. Oh yeah. So my point still stands, even though it's wrong about the other thing. No, I think I think Apple makes a lot of money. They have their Apple Arcade service, which is specifically games. Um, you know, I, I think Apple rakes in a lot of money when it comes to gaming type services. So, um, well, speaking of free to play and and microtransactions, uh, you know, EA may have lost FIFA or kicked them to the curb, depending on who you believe. Uh, actually, I, I don't know if the news story is literally. I think. EA did, you know, uh, choose not to renew the license with FIFA, but they have chose to renew the license with the Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth Enterprises with the idea that their next game will be a free to play collectible RPG entitled the Lord of the Rings Heroes of Middle Earth. Um, (laughs) I only put this in here because I know Jocelyn is such a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings. So, Jim, do you feel like you want to collect several variations of aragorn uh let me preface this by saying that lord of the rings you know tolkien is my favorite fandom Uh, i like it more than stuff like you know star wars or any kind of like comic thing or anything like that but i couldn't care less about this and i actually find the term like mobile collectible rpg to be pretty terrifying in terms of what that could mean for monetization because that just sounds like essentially some sort of gotcha system or even if it's not an actual gotcha loot box system, it's going to be some kind of weird microtransaction garbage encourage you to spend tons and tons of money to get the characters you want, even if it's not like directly through a gotcha. So I bet this is just going to be a complete shit show to anybody that wants just like the idea of, you know, a fun little mobile game set in Middle Earth. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, we don't have a date on that. We'll continue to keep an eye on it, uh, on what EA does with the Middle Earth licenses. But, uh, you know, a good time to release it would be around the fall when that uh, Amazon Prime series is going to be hitting. So, um, you know, EA is all about that synergy. It's in their PowerPoints, I'm sure. So we might (laughs) see that happen. Uh, Our last story tonight is uh, I didn't mean to, you know, go on the... uh, you know, on the path towards uh, more more of a, a negative news, but uh, Xbox had some outages over the over the weekend uh, and into the week where uh, people weren't able to access their game catalog. Uh, they'd click on a game that they own, or even a game that they had through Game Pass, and it would basically say like, "You you don't own the content. You need to purchase it or or sign into the account that that has access to it." Um, they did acknowledge it was an issue. They have been working towards the fix They're They say they're nearly there. Full mitigation is the word they use. Uh, they're nearly there, but it brought up an interesting conversation I saw on Twitter about DRM. And, you know, when you buy a game, the company doesn't really treat it like you own the game. Like there's still a license. You're buying the license and you have to be able to authenticate that license in order to play even when and this is the way it's supposed to work on xbox and playstation and i'm sure on the switch as well um is that you have your home xbox 
or your home PS5. And that basically says on your account that like, look, this piece of hardware gets to play this game that this person purchased no matter what. If you've got the authenticated profile, the authenticated, you know, piece of hardware, doesn't matter if there is an internet connection, this game will run. And even in those scenarios, it wasn't working. Clearly a bug in that Microsoft has has stated as such, but it, I mean, Whirlwind's going to listen to this and he He's, he's probably like, see, I told you, I was pl- I was able to play all my Xbox games, no problem. It's one of those things, it can be scary to think about. I think like I trust Microsoft to sort it out, but if this ever happened in Nintendo, I'd be like, shit, we ain't going to play Mario Kart for like three weeks while Nintendo tries to figure out which wire got pulled. <laughs> but I mean, I know you you didn't run into the, the specific issue on Xbox, and, and I didn't either, I, I didn't test it out, but I mean... It can be a little frustrating when you go to run a game and it doesn't run and it's it's not your fault. It's it's this licensing issue. Like, does it does this make you want to buy less digital? Like, is this just growing pains of of still, a you know, in the grand scheme of video games, a, a fairly new approach to to purchasing games? I mean, digital really hit. I guess it's been I guess it's been a few generations, but really, I think it was the last generation that that made digital like really something you could do. Yeah, I think the previous one, the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, was when it really started to get big. So even like, yeah, back in, I mean, in the the Wii was what, like 2006? You could buy digital stuff through that. So even back in, I guess, probably the PS2 era, you could. Though I didn't really, I barely ever played on PS2. But I, I wouldn't say that it's going to make me, like, think about not buying digital versions, because it is usually a rare enough occurrence. That's not going to like affect my buying habits, but it is an issue and it's going to continue to be an issue. And I'm not entirely sure it's going to be growing pains because I could see this becoming worse in the future because there is this continuous trend towards always online. Xbox famously tried to do it back in what 2013 with the Xbox one trying to say, Oh, this is, this requires an always online internet connection to use. And we've kind of seen it continue, like all these games, whether DRM or sometimes for no apparent reason at all, just require you to, to authenticate online occasionally. And it's a real potential problem because it's actually kind of similar to the problem with depending on any sort of cloud service as a platform like Google Stadia, where you buy your games on that platform because infrastructure, even in like major cities in the U.S. is still just not consistent enough and reliable enough for you to be able to think for sure that I will never have a problem where I cannot play my games. And apparently this, according to a Twitter account called Does It Play, which is like uh, focused on ensuring that people know what games can be played offline, even in like the digital era, they said that this isn't an issue with DRM on like PlayStation and Switch. It's apparently just something of the way that Microsoft has it set up, even though the the DRM is at the request of the publisher. But apparently Sony and Nintendo have it so that this particular issue with authentication check-ins isn't a problem. But still, even if Xbox fixes this, I think it's just still an issue that's going to be continuing to happen because just this concept of like, Companies expecting you to always be online, and sometimes you just can't be. Sometimes your internet goes down for multiple days, 
and you can't get a tech out until, you know, Thursday afternoon to fix the problem that started on Sunday, which has literally happened to me in the past. So anytime I hear any of this stuff, even though it is in the grand scheme of things, doesn't happen that often, though I believe it did happen recently with um, Sony. And so it's definitely, I'm not trying to pick on Microsoft because this is an issue with anybody that's running a service like this. But I don't know, it just, it frustrates the hell out of me because there just should not be these obstacles in the way to people playing games that don't require an interconnection. And companies just seem to care less and less about really ensuring that it's not going to be an issue. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there is some concern from folks that like, there is this like call home function for, for these digital games. And, you know, when the purchase has been authenticated, it's tied to your account. And some of these games have like a, and I get it from a subscription standpoint, like game pass. Um, I've never tried it. Like you're absolutely right. Like when the internet goes down, it for us, it's when the power goes out and you know, where I live, like when the power goes out, it's it's out for maybe at best a couple hours. And even then, like my internet has a battery backup, but I guess that the power's out, I'm not really playing games. But like in the case of the Switch, um, there is a call home function for the subscription games, specifically the Nintendo Switch Online, you know, um, it'll check to see if you can play certain games that are a part of that expansion pass. And I looked it up online and there is like a week grace period where if you are offline, it needs to check in at least once a week. And I get it. Like if you did the math, you may be able to like push your subscription out an extra week. But to Nintendo, it's like, well, if you subscribe by the year, we'll give you the extra week. Congrats. You kept your switch off the Internet. Um, But like, yeah, like I think there needs to be more conversations of like, okay, Internet, it's awesome. But sometimes there are going to be these situations where Internet's going to be spotty or not working. Like, I remember we've had tech issues not here, but at the other house where our Internet was spotty at best and would go down a lot. And it, it, you know, it took the techs weeks. I was I was getting calls while at work, like from techs being like, look, I I shopped this up to my manager. And now the the regional tech guy, regional manager is going to call you and. We ended up having a conversation about like, I think it was during the uh, launch of Overwatch and, and, you know, saying like, oh, yeah, I I can't play this game. It's not working. And and he totally understood. But it was one of those things where they had to, like, figure out the problem. And it took them weeks to figure out, like, oh, we did a new install on the same, you know, in the neighborhood. And it it was causing noise in the line or, or something like that. And that takes time. And I think as we move more and more into this digital realm, we need to make sure that there is ways and clear ways, you know, described, you know, I hate to say this, but like put it on their website, on their support docs, explain exactly how you can access your content when you're offline, when you're online, how long you can be offline before you have to go back online. Cause again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we can just, it would be nice if you could buy something on the store, have systems in place on your system that say like, this is my Xbox. This is my profile. I bought this game at the very least, let it run no matter whether I have a connection or not on this system. I I mean, I want to see more of that. I have faith that Xbox and PlayStation will be able to figure that out. But like with the eShop and Wii U shop going down for Nintendo this year, I've kind of like started to think like, Oh man, like 
what happens when this happens to the Switch? Like, what happens if I go to try to play my 3DS 15 years from now? Am I going to be able to run my digital games? You know, it's a it's a scary thought. Uh, it's it's not fun to think about your games, you know, going away. You have to hope that the companies are going to start planning for this stuff better. I mean, like like I said, apparently with this particular issue that happened with Xbox, apparently it's not an issue for Sony and Nintendo, so it's just the way the Xbox set up their system, so it can probably be fixed. And I'm not I'm not saying they're being like, you know, like intentionally like lazy or anything or just not bothering to make a good system for this, but it does feel like it's kind of something that's can be an afterthought for these companies where like they just didn't even think about like, oh, what will happen if we have an outage and people's games are forced to authenticate and they can't. And they need to think about this. And Sony does that so they don't have another issue with Gran Turismo and Nintendo needs to think about that. And I also do hope that we are on the subject of like Switch eShop going away. I think that's a thing why backwards compatibility is important. Though Xbox has always been good about it. Sony's getting on board with it. But Switch has been, you know, like if the physical media we're using works then there's back compatibility with a new system but if it's something different like going from a mini disc to a cartridge then it's like well nope out of luck and they need to at the very least i think with whenever they do a full refresh and a completely new console i think they need to install have at least like at the very least digital backwards compatibility with switch and really they ought to figure out a physical backwards compatibility even if it's like a dongle that you have to plug into your new console that you, you know, essentially like a, like an SD card reader for your computer, something like that, where you insert your cartridge in, plug it into your console and it reads that and it works on, you know, whatever weird name Nintendo comes up with for the new console, because it is like with so much stuff being digital now and more and more focus on preservation in general, it is obviously going to be a very, continue to be a major point of frustration when you know you've bought these games and maybe you want to play them again and they just don't work anymore and there's certainly the technology both physical on physical and digital side of things it exists it's not terribly expensive or terribly difficult to do and you just have to really hope that these companies get better about making sure that this stuff works going forward yeah yeah, and and being you know open and, and honest about how the system works, and being open to conversation. I I think like I know they want to make sure people aren't abusing the system, but again, for the majority of gamers who just want to play their games and and know what to do in a in a disruption of service, um, to be able to to keep their games running, I think like there is a a tweet in the article uh that basically says like they'd like to see Xbox Wire post stating how offline works on Xbox consoles, what to do during a disruption and whether they learned any lessons based on, on what's happened here. Um, so it, it, I don't know if we'll get that, but again, like if any, if any company is going to offer sort of thoughts and, and, um, and feelings on, on how the, how they manage the outage and, and how they can manage it going forward. I, I feel like Xbox is probably the one better suited to do that. Yeah. I, I, I think Microsoft will take a look at this and fix this specific problem. Yes. I'm not really concerned about it going forward, but the problem is what happened when there was the next 
issue of some type, whether it's DRM or always online or something, will they have a solution for that problem? Because like I said, you know, Sony apparently doesn't have the problem that Xbox having here, but they apparently had just a complete fiasco with Grand, with Gran Turismo, a game that is a first party game for them. So obviously they didn't like, do the due diligence on it either. So even if they fix these current problems, they really need to be stop reacting to problems and start being proactive and identifying things that could happen and fixing them ahead of time so that they don't come up and people aren't sitting around for hours or maybe days, just not able to use their games, even though they don't actually need to be online. Yeah. Yep. hundred percent. So we'll see, uh, We'll see what comes of this. If there's any big uh, additions to the story, we'll certainly update everybody next week. But uh, that is going to do it for our show tonight. Uh, we mentioned the Discord a lot on this episode. Definitely jump in, bit.ly slash TGI Discord. You'll find um, lots of chatter in the general chat. You'll also find our Game Club channel. And if you have any questions about Game Club, that's a great place to put them. And we have several folks who would be happy to answer your questions including Jim and myself. Uh, you can also email the show info at gamersinpodcast.com if you have any questions, concerns, you want to throw some thoughts our way to address on the show, uh, you can do so with that email. And Jim, before we leave, I wanted to give everyone, uh, sorry, I wanted to give you some time to tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. Oh, well, besides being in the TGI Discord all the time, you can find me on Twitter at Jimmy the Shovel. Perfect. So definitely check that out. You can also find more of our episodes at gamersinpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, like Jim said, you can follow him at Jimmy the Shovel. You can find Jocelyn at Joss Plays, me at R. Murphy, and don't forget to follow the show at The Gamers In. Thanks so much for staying at The Gamers In. Remember, tune in next week. Uh, Jocelyn will be back, and we'll be talking about um, video games. So stay tuned. <laughs>